Hello and welcome to the Culture File Weekly with me, Luke Clancy, and an album of this week's audio stickers on art and culture on the island and off it. And this week, the revolution that dare not speak its name in the latest documentary by Kira Highland, a new future for psychedelics that looks rather like the past. Moot Tape celebrates five years of DIY fun and the art of the robot cello. But first, double history. A dream of a republic that never was lingers around Kriha Radikaha, Radical Hearts, a new film from documentarian Kira Highland, working with the historian Mary McAuliffe, whose research has been uncovering some of the hidden histories of the Irish 20th century. Highland looks at the lives and politics of LGBTQ plus women in the revolutionary period, such as Margaret Skinner, Eva Gore Booth and Madeleine French Mullen, women for whom the promise of an independent Ireland was the promise of a future of equality and radical openness, a hope that was all but dashed by the shape the new state took. Culture File spoke to director Kira Highland about making new histories. I've always been uh, mad into history. I think history really matters. I think history has made us who we are today and I think it informs our present and I think it kind of informs our future as well and I think the best thing we can do is learn from history and work out how we ended up here because then at least that gives us some choice about where we go in the future. I get the impression that a lot of these women were on the anti-treaty side and, and that's one of the reasons they fared so badly in the new state. All the women in the documentary, well, with the exception of one or two of them that abstained and were pacifist for their own reasons, but the majority of the women in, women in the documentary took the anti-treaty side, as did an awful lot of radical Republican women, because they felt that it was selling out the um, ideal of equality that had been promised in 1916 in the proclamation. Because they were on the losing side, the radical wing, the left wing socialist wing, really lost the civil war and the more conservative um, middle class faction of the revolution won the civil war and came into power and immediately set around set a, a, about making um, relationships and deals with the church with the big landowners with the the shopkeepers with business interests and so very much the conservative um, forces came into power and these radical women were incredibly sidelined they were sidelined because a they were so radical b they had supported the wrong side and see they basically never stopped fighting for that equality the new free state that came into being had no interest really in giving social equality and it certainly had no interest in giving um, equality between the sexes and so a lot of these women were incredibly disappointed in the new free state that came into being having gone out and fought for it in 1916. A lot of these women were very excluded from society because of their politics, because they were so radical, because of their sexuality. But they found each other and they found like a network of like minded, really dynamic women who debated and, and argued with one another, but supported each other. And I actually think the story is in that network. Yeah, it's in that entire group of women. I think it's no accident that we don't know more about these stories or that they haven't been more sort of uh, well known up until this point. I think there's a couple of reasons for that. I think um, for a long time we were very averse to the idea that our heroes of the Irish Revolution were LGBTQ plus or queer in any way, shape or form. 
And I think as well, like a lot of the women, um, the women that folk that feature in my documentary, um, you know, women's lives for historians have generally been sidelined and neglected. They're seen as not as important as the big heroes or the military battles. And when it comes to women's private lives, they're seen as even less important. You know, they're the realm of the of the emotion or whatever. And that's not seen as important as the big political ideas or the political movements. The irony being that many of the women in this um, movie were incredibly political in their own right. But I think if you were also um, queer or LGBTQ+, your lives were even more hidden because people hid the evidence of their sexuality and they hid the evidence of, the re of their relationships because it was too dangerous to, to do otherwise. So there's a bit of a job of excavating. For me, for the, the visual style of this film, like we only ever had glimpses of these women from history. You know, it was glimpses in a letter or glimpses in a diary or glimpses in something somebody else had reported and so the visual style even though they're dramatic reconstructions they're glimpses we never really see things clearly you know a lot of stuff is out of focus or very soft or um, very flowy or very lyrical and that was very deliberate to just kind of get visual glimpses of these people to match the kind of historical record that we have. I was thinking, even though the focus is very soft, you have to, they're all costumed and the sets are all there, you know. It's like, hmm, you could tighten the focus because we can look at those clothes. <laughs> um, my uh, my uh, cinematographer would be so happy with you. <laughs> Uh, yeah, we had the costumes, a lot of the costumes specifically made, which was an absolute gorgeous process as well, really talented costume designer. And it was just yummy to sink into that for a couple of weeks and just talk about fabrics and colours. And <laughs> it was kind of magic. Yeah. One of the women in particular, Margaret Skinner, is a really good example of how clothing is used to signify identity, even um, um, even 100 years ago um, among these women. There's a wonderful photograph of Margaret in 1915 when she's in Dublin. She dressed as a member of the Fianna, so she's passing as a boy, as a Fianna boy. She's the flat cap on and, and the coat and, and the uh, trousers of the Fianna with two young women on either arm. That photograph is in her memoir, Doing My Bit for Ireland, but the photograph is just of Margaret. The two women are airbrushed out. So is this an early example of uh, de-queering or airbrushing out an inconvenient photograph that might be suggestive of something else. Margaret Skinner was quite um, good at passing as a boy. She would wear male clothing. She took an enormous amount of pride in that, actually. It was sort of billed or passed off as, you know, um, part of her spying or eluding the British. But I think there was maybe more in it as well. I think these women liked playing around with gender identity. And I think they understood even back then that clothing was a major signifier of that. And I think it's really interesting that they were exploring that and that they were um, experimenting with it and playing with it. And I think it shows, yeah, I, I love that about her, I have to say. The other thing that feels really contemporary about this group of people and that resonates with, I think, our modern activist generation our younger modern activist generation that really want equality and want to make the world a better place for everybody that lives in it. These women were part of that movement a hundred years ago. They are the forerunners of that modern activism now. Do you ever um, do speculative history in your head? Say uh, the other side had come out on top in the Civil War or that the, the treaty had 
enshrined more egalitarian principles. Speculative fiction is my favourite genre. <laughs> I read it all the time. Um, I love Robert Harris. You know, he did that one where um, Britain lost the World War Two and became part of its fatherland. It became part of it became part of the German Empire. I absolutely love speculative fiction. Um, I don't know what the outcome would have been. I don't know would we have been better off. Very often, left wing victors don't build the utopia that they set out to to build. And and I kind of think maybe there's always a swing to the center at some point. So I honestly don't know, but I do love speculative fiction. Yeah. <laughs> Kira Highland there on her film Kriha Radikaha, Radical Hearts, which is available now on the TG Kaha player. Now, is there a way to talk about psychedelics that isn't characterised by frivolousness or science-free moral panics? And who needs to have that conversation? Psychedelics, and in particular magic mushrooms or psilocybin, have been undergoing a steady reassessment in recent years, and their use in care is being researched around the world, including in Ireland. Nature magazine thinks that psilocybin and other psychedelics are poised to make a significant impact on treatments available to psychiatric meds. Some advocate their use in broader circumstances. Sam Gandhi is an ecologist and psychedelics expert who sees a role for psychedelics like psilocybin in developing a healthier relationship with the environment. Are psychedelics the cure for capitalism? Sam Gandhi spoke recently at Dublin's Project Arts Centre as part of the Seed Talk series about psilocybin and the science of mushrooms. Culture Files' Angela O'Shaughnessy asked him about the past, present and futures of psychedelics. Myself and my good friend, and we went to this electronic nightclub called Fabric on the underground, having eaten each a tub of mushrooms. And uh, it, it was uh, quite a harrowing <laughs> first encounter. I knew I'd encountered something interesting and powerful and mysterious, and something I wanted to revisit, but with a bit more humility and respect. I would say, I guess, right off the bat, that classical psychedelics, such as psilocybin in Magic Mushrooms, they're, they're non-addictive, they're non-toxic. However, as well as the physical, physiological aspects of, of their effects, there's the psychological impacts of their effects and their profound effects upon the psyche. You know, this is why indigenous groups that use them only tend to use them in sort of structured ceremonial ritualistic context they don't they don't tend to use them frivolously and then if we look to the modern clinical approach using psychedelics now set and settings also taken very seriously while there's definitely wrong ways of using psychedelics there's not a singular right way you know there's potentially a plurality of good ways of using psychedelics depending on the aims and outcomes you're kind of hoping for I was giving a talk at Breaking Convention, a wonderful conference that happened in London every two years. And Dr. David Luke, who's one of the people behind the, the conference and has since become a friend, he gave a talk discussing some of his research, looking at how psychedelics can potentially influence people's connection to nature and their ecological concern. And that was, for me, a bit of a light bulb moment. So earlier this year, I published with David and some other colleagues, we published a paper called Transpersonal Ecodelia. 
this was interesting because it seems, you know, prior to psychedelic research, it was considered personality traits are fairly rigid and stable. They don't tend to, to change much. We found that following a psilocybin experience, at least in our study sample, it seems that people are becoming more sensitive to or responsive to beauty in nature. You know, there's a really good body of, of evidence now to show that time in nature is, is so important. Obviously, more and more people are growing up disconnected from nature or having not had the, the, the kind of um, circumstances or the luck to, to have regular access to nature. But it seems that psychedelics have this potential to maybe kind of ignite this sense of uh, kinship or connection to the, the natural world where there might not have been such a strong bond before. A few studies have reported that following psychedelic experiences, people do choose to spend more time in nature. Back in the 60s, it tended to be much more alarmist to the point of yeah being ridiculous and there's still i think some cultural baggage and hangover from that time i think it's one of the reasons that psychedelics are are schedule one substances in the uk which is the strictest classification the the official designation of that is a high potential for abuse and no medical value the growing scientific evidence base really refutes that classification psychedelics do have growing evidence for medical utility and they don't have a high potential for abuse. They're not addictive habit-forming substances in the way that other substances can be. You know, it's important to, to emphasise that even, even some of the research that's been conducted, so for instance, Johns Hopkins looked at high-dose psilocybin and the mystical or spiritual experiences. Even when selecting an otherwise healthy group without mental health diagnoses or clinical diagnoses even when preparing them and supporting them there were still adverse reactions uh, admittedly transient for the most part we have to remember that those people were being kind of well looked after so if we think about naturalistic or recreational use where those safeguards aren't in place you can kind of see that there's the potential for things to kind of go south or go off the rails you know, if we maybe back in the 50s, 60s, taken the time to learn more and acknowledge the experience of these indigenous groups who've been working with these substances for a long time, centuries um, in, in some cases, we probably wouldn't have had to sort of learn the whole set and setting rule from the ground up to the same degree. It's interesting, I think, to see what's happening in the US, you know, which was the original source of the war on drugs. It feels like they've kind of thrown in the towel now and, and admit that the, the drugs have won the war because they're starting to decriminalise psychedelics at the not just city but state level. So we kind of need to update those classification systems. They're kind of lagging behind where the evidence is pointing. Looking ahead... I would hope that psychedelics don't just remain in the hands of the medical profession. Uh, you know, as much good as they can potentially uh, do there when used and handled well, I wonder if we'll get to a position that will be slightly more reflective of the indigenous approach to using psychedelics, where it's much more held in a kind of community container. And that in itself could bear fruit 
the more individualistic clinical approach perhaps doesn't. Sam Gandhi there and the reporter was Angela O'Shaughnessy. You can find Seed Talks on Instagram at Seed Talks, all one word. Sending signals and waving flags is part of what the record label and design collective Moot Tapes is all about. Founded in Kilkenny in 2018, Moot Tapes was originally a DIY cassette label dedicated to putting out genre-agnostic Irish music. Since then, club nights and festivals have been part of the operation, as well as good old-fashioned vinyl releases, all wrapped up in the loving care of award-winning illustrator and artist Stephen Morton, alongside the musical direction of producer Peter Lawler. Moot Tapes have celebrated their five years in action by gathering together Morton's mostly hand-drawn visual materials in book form. They spoke to Culture Files' Quaylen McNamara about collectives and dispersal. Moot Tapes is a label that I started with my friend Stephen Morton five years ago. We used to run something called Moot. They were like club nights in the Bernard Shaw for years and we had um, articles online. And then, yeah, just five years ago this month, we decided to start our own record label. Uh, We initially started just releasing tapes, hence the name. More recently, we've gone on to releasing records. But the whole thing with it is it's all physical. The reason we started Moot Tapes was as a result of my experience with previous record labels, working with them before that. I kind of got a bit, um, I would say, disillusioned with releasing music. Um, I didn't like the way that you release something and then it kind of just disappears into the digital ether forever and there could be a big build-up. I remember there was sometimes I was waiting two years for a track to get released and then it would just kind of, it would be out and then that's it forever. So with Mood Tapes, we wanted to have something physical. So for the artists as much as anyone else that, we're releasing your music and you're actually going to get at the start this tape and now they're going to get this record of their music that will be around well forever hopefully you know uh, so that was a big inspiration for the label i'd have a broad um kind of taste of music i love everything from more ambient electronic music to techno to house music classical music rock and everything in between and that's kind of why we started the Signs of Life releases as well, because um, we release them on 7-inch. And the good thing about a 7-inch is you can have a track each side, and uh, we kind of try to have different music on each side of the record. And a good example of that is the one we did with Claire, Claire O'Brien, who's more of a singer-songwriter. Then we had Tom Healy, who is a singer-songwriter as well, but makes kind of more DIY, um, kind of garage rock, rough and ready music on the other side. So... Something for everyone. Really happy with the, the roster of artists that have released on the label so far. We've had people like uh, Elaine Howley, who uh, is in. Altered Hours and released an amazing solo album last year on Touch Sensitive Records out of Belfast. We have Linda Buckley and Irene Buckley, who um, they more recently uh, would be known for doing the soundtrack to the Sinead O'Connor documentary. We have Phil Christie as well, who used to be in O Emperor. They won the Choice Music Prize years ago. 
he releases music as the bonk and I, when I mention one artist they've usually released more than once with the label so like Elaine has released twice Iron's released twice Neil's released probably four or five times so uh, we must be doing something good if they want to release again with us one of the big things about the label would be the artwork that's involved in creating the releases and that's all done by Stephen Morton and he is as important to the label as the artists that we release My name is Stephen Martin and I'm an illustrator, artist, comic book artist and member of the collective Moot and Moot Tapes. The idea behind Moot Tapes was to create a collective of artists and musicians within Kilkenny and we like to think of it as a, as a kind of a flag that we hold up to other people in various parts of Ireland to signal to them that we're here doing like-minded things and I think as we gravitate towards different places like I'm in Glasgow now and we still have that collective identity even though we're all relatively um, displaced in, in different ways but yeah it kind of signals to to um, people and we use these uh, symbols to communicate. For the five-year anniversary of Moo Tapes, we decided to do a collection of all the various ephemera and artwork that we've done over the last five years. So it's a collection of the record artwork, some stuff that I ended up not using. Then there's the posters designed by myself and Dave Sheenan from the various shows that we did in Bernard Shaw and early shows in Kilkenny in the in this little um, book. You tell me how it sounds. Myself and Steve always talk about it. It's very fun. That's why we do it. Um, it's amazing that we get to release uh, this music from from artists that I'm just a massive fan of in general. So the fact that they want to release with the label is amazing and it's uh, it's really nice. And the fact that they want to keep releasing with us is it's a good sign. So we'll we'll keep doing it for as long as as long as we enjoy it. I would be very, very disappointed if we weren't doing this in another five years. I'd be very disappointed if we weren't doing this in another 20 years. With labels and stuff like that, got to do with music and the arts in general, I think if you just kind of keep going, keep plugging along, things will present themselves. Peter Lawler and Stephen Morton there of Moot Tapes. And Quaylen McNamara was the reporter. You'll find Moot Tapes on Instagram, Moot underscore tapes, as well as on Bandcamp. And finally, this time on Culture File, the robots of Stockholm. Swedish composer Fredrik Gran has created Manghilde, a robot cellist whose interests include Python playing on hit records and offering themselves as a tool for social inclusion. Lately, Manghilde has been stepping out, yeah, pretty much figuratively, given that Manghilde is basically two arms, with Harmony, a post-feminist performance artist robot created by Swedish artist and musician Arvinda Birström. Will it last? Could it last? After all, they come from such different worlds. Culture Files Louise McMahon beamed into Frederick Grand's cello robot factory to hear one side of the story. Like, where'd she get that crazy name? 
uh, Magnhild, yes, it, it, it was a, a relative uh, of mine, an old lady that had a, she had a very nice vibrato when she was speaking. It's actually industrial robotic arms, that's the, the base, the main concept, like those the parts of the robotics are, you know, like uh, machines that sort of exist in the, in the industry, in the factories already, painting Volvos or, or so. It's actually two, two robots, it's uh, two arms. Uh, and those two arms go to like a performance laptop. To start with, I tried to have it to be able to play <laughs> the cello, uh, and that's that's a test. If, you, if a robot arm would play the piano, you, you press a button and you have a, a in-tuned pitch like that. But the cello, you know, it's millimeters and there's vibrato. There's a lot of aspects that is difficult. And also the, the programming of when, when the bow ends, it needs to go back and how much of the bow are you using. You can control them in, in, um, in different ways. You can do it with pure, like, you know, hardcore programming, like lines of code. Some robots, you could take them and put them in a position and then storage that position and then another position and then it can go between those positions. So you could actually physically move the robot arm like that, which could be very handy too at some point. Most easy for me to see it is that I'm playing the robot that is playing the cello, like that the robot itself is an instrument. And this is good because you could sort of find some organic things, like the, the movement, like an organic movement, which is not per default what you see from a robot. So that's very exciting to try to combine very organic and uh, very stiff. In contact with some disabled musicians that used to be able to play and, uh, you know, there's a lot of uh, inclusion of that. Or even, you know, if you put the parameters in some ways, you could have someone that's not playing the cello play the cello. You can connect the parameters with other features, whatever it could be, if it's visual or dance or thought processes. Yeah, it's, it's exciting. And what I've been talking about with a friend is to add like sort of a tuner like you, the one you have on your phone almost and a microphone if you have that data you, you, the robot could sort of in real re real time also listen to itself and adjust and which could be good for for being in tune but also for you know listen to other musicians and interact and, uh, more ai uh, approach to it we have released some music where uh, Meinhild is playing the cello. Uh, Arvida is singing. Arvida Byström. She's into doing that. And uh, we worked together with, and also with a producer called Walter Berge. We are kind of different in our style. She's been working with a lot of femininity and um, sex doll robot. Another, like a female looking uh, full-scale uh, robot with, I think it has, um, in the head, it has sort of a Siri function, so it can speak, you could talk to it. And she makes performance with that at art galleries, uh, speaking to this other <laughs> fake version of herself. Humans are a miracle. Everyone is special and unique. I love all humans, and I'm not a feminist. And it's kind of also interesting to see what happens when that is combined uh, with uh, these kind of uh, 
non-gender classified machines like the, the industrial robots. I mean, mine, it has a female name, Magnil, but they're a bit uh, not uh, um, humanoids. So yeah, we had some kind of robotic um, connection there with different uh, ways of working with robotics. And also different kind of mechanics that you put together or those things have, they, like, it, I think it's very interesting. There's a character and a, like something unique, you know, among humans it's like that, of course. Different cellists sounds different. There's no one needs to be best or anything like that, but, you know, it's just different characters. And that's also what I'm chasing a bit, like the character of that heartless machine. Frederick Graham there, along with robot pals Manghilda and Harmony. Louise McMahon was the reporter. Have a look at frederickgrand.com for cybernetic recitals and other treats. And that brings to a close this edition of the Culture File Weekly. We'll be back with more cybernetic hookups next Saturday tea time and with your daily dose of Culture File each weekday evening at 6.40. We're on Blue Sky now for updates. That's at culture.bsky.social. Let's see how long that one lasts. Till next time, bye now. <laughs>